Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast, or if you're joining us for the very first time, welcome. I'm Ellen, I'm your host, and before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to, as part of my experimentation for this season, just touch on something that I learned this week, or perhaps something that was reinforced for me, and it was reinforced by a coaching client, because I have had a couple of weeks of being not fully well, nothing serious, just a bit of a bug that laid me low. And one of the things that I grapple with when I'm not able to operate at 100% is just that, not being able to operate at 100% and really feeling like there's so much to do and I don't have time and a bit of what we call catastrophic thinking or catastrophizing, starting to worry about all the implications of not being able to get the things done by the time I said I would be and feeling like I can't take the time off to look after myself when I'm not well. And one my coaching clients yesterday, we were talking about this topic and she said, oh, it's about giving yourself permission, isn't it? And I said, yeah, you're right. It's about giving yourself permission. I think sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to feel unwell or be able to take some time out or to rest or even just to relax and do other things that we know are really important to our overall well-being. So that was a nice way for a client to reframe something for me about giving myself permission to not necessarily operate at full tilt all the time when my body or mind is unable to. And um, I thought that might be a tip that might help you too. So I have an apology to make before I introduce my guest for today's interview. There is something else I learned this week, and that is not to rely on previous microphone settings when you record a podcast interview. As you'll notice, the audio quality for my end of this interview is not great. My guest, Deidre Anderson, sounds fantastic, and that's the important thing. But I sound a little like I'm in the next room and not sitting directly in front of my mic. And that's because, unbeknownst to me, because I didn't check the settings, my laptop was recording through the inbuilt microphone and not through my proper official podcast mic. So I'm sorry that I sound like I'm in the next room while talking to Deirdre. I'm talking this up as an opportunity to learn and grow from my mistake, one that I won't make again, I hope. So let me introduce Deirdre properly. She is speaking to us from Sydney. Her name is Deirdre or Dee Anderson, and she's a performance and wellbeing specialist who works with elite athletes, business people and young people to assist them in transitions in their lives and their personal development. Dee's a director of the Performance and Transition Institute. She's been a national leader in the world of university sport and the development of student athletes. She's a director of Australian University Sport, the National Rugby League Players Association, the Michael Hughes Foundation and the International College of Management in Sydney. Dee's been acknowledged worldwide for her contribution to elite athletes and has a lifelong commitment to supporting the development of young people. Welcome, Dee. Thank you very much. You had a long career in sports administration and a prominent role in helping some really high-profile athletes during difficult, difficult periods. 
in their careers. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience that you've had and, and what are some of the challenges that athletes face in their careers? Mm. A lot of people ask me that question and I think the short answer, without boring all of your listeners, is <laughs> I feel very committed to playing it forward. I had so much um, provided to me as a young person through sport and it's been an opportunity to recognise just how much it's influenced and shaped the person that I've been that I almost just melted into uh, sport in a very indirect way. I started off in as a cadet journalist. I thought I wanted to be uh, a, jour- a journalist in sport and that didn't last long for obvious reasons. And then I went into uh, the Royal Australian Air Force as the first physical education uh, teacher and then started at the Victorian Institute of Sport um, after a really um, fabulous career with the Department of Defence. And, and so it's just been my life. I haven't separated my passion and my commitment to young people and my occupation. It's just who I am. But the issues that athletes face is no different than what they've faced since the beginning of time, that it is a very uh, abnormal environment at, at times, particularly at the elite level, and it sometimes causes athletes to measure their entire self-worth just on, on sport. And as a consequence of that, living a um, what we might call a, a normal life becomes even more challenging, and sport can very quickly... Um, shelter you. Uh, you have an imposed structure placed on you on a daily basis. You are pretty much guided and um, supported in, in, in very many ways. But unless you know yourself and know who you are as a person, you can get lost in that world very quickly. And so when challenging times occur, or you may have had um, some sort of mental illness that sports kept at bay, then it just pokes its head up at really inopportune times and causes all sorts of stress for the young people and, and retired athletes as well. And I can imagine that particularly, well, I, I guess for most sports, I, I have a 10-year-old son who's already, you know, thoroughly enjoying a range of different sports and performing, you know, very well for his age group. So sport, for those people who do go on to have elite careers, starts very, very young, doesn't it? It does, and and therein lies one of the challenges. There's a very dangerous word that is used around youth sport, and that is you've got a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. If that word isn't um, explained in the context of of where you're at in in that moment in time, you can get lost in that word, and you'll see young people that will refer to themselves as a footballer or refer to themselves as a basketball player, and so the identity can be taken on board at a very, very young age. But the flip side of that is if you have really good scaffolding around you and, 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 and good people that keep you grounded and you have other interests going on in your life and it's okay, it's very healthy, but it's when other things in your life get shut down and it's a little bit like, I use the analogy quite often with a lot of young people that if you think of a chair, a chair has four legs for a reason. It provides that stability that enables you in times of difficulty, to to lean one way or the other. And often in sport, if you don't have those three legs supporting you and you're just sitting on one, when that breaks off, well, obviously you're going to fall over. So what do the four legs stand for? 
Well, that's a very good question. Um, they can be different things to different people, but if I was to ask you that question, it might be family for obvious reasons. It might be your profession. It might be um, some professional development you're doing, and it might be your your sport. Everyone will have four or should work towards having a scaffold around them that um, is important. And a lot of young people, they'll say friends, they'll say family, they'll say sport, and they might say their dog or their cat or whatever. It doesn't really matter as long as those scaffolding um, points are your reference when things are, are not going according to plan. So when you're talking to young people about this sort of thing, and, and I guess, I mean, all the, the ideas that are flashing into my mind, you mentioned identity, um, but also things like values and, and concepts that I suppose as adults we can start to get our heads around, but for young people this, it might still be early days to understand the importance of values and, and those sorts of ideas. So when you're talking to young people about these sorts of issues and how to identify their scaffolding, what, what are the sorts of words or terms that you use to try and yeah. unpack that? Well, I use simple things like the chair as an example. Let's just go and sit on this chair and talk about what supports it and try not to talk too deeply about uh, or too meaningfully about things. And then I'll ask them about um, at a very sort of young age at 14, 15, to try and get them to understand what, what their moral compass looks like. What are, what are their values? And, and, and that is a very hard question for young people to answer. It's a very hard, hard question for adults. <laughs> but I'm a great believer if you can get in touch with the, the values, when you're not feeling 100% about decisions that you may or may not be making, it gives you a reference point to go back to and say, all right, well, I now know why I'm not enjoying this job or I now know why I'm not fitting into this group or I now know. And it enables people to make an informed decision. So I'll, I'll do that. And simply I'll, I'll get them to draw a circle and get them to divide up how they spend their time. And then I'll say, well, now draw another circle and tell me what you'd like it to look like. So a lot of practical tools. I'm, I'm a very practical person. The more I can help people with tools to determine how to make their way through these challenges or transitions or whatever you want to call them, then the better they're able to transition through through their life. It might be one thing, such as sport, that brings them to going through those tools. But at the end of the day, it's, it applies to everything. It's not just sport. And so the more you get to know yourself, sport can sometimes um, enshroud those opportunities, uh, especially if you are catapulted into elite sport. And um, you, I've worked with some of the most successful athletes in the world and I was absolutely gobsmacked to think, that they really had life skills of sometimes a 16- or 15-year-old because they'd skipped over that. And so it's it's just been a, a case of trying to help people to understand themselves and to know when something doesn't feel right to reference it against something else. Okay. I mean, that's something that I'm absolutely passionate about, that, that notion of self-awareness, of, of helping people to know who they are you know, where they belong, what's important to them in order to kind of have those mental structures in place to be able to make decisions and, and move forward. And what interested me when I think back to that chair analogy, if young people have sport as one of their, and, and say, you know, these young people who, as you say, might have been catapulted into it early on and, and did skip a, I mean, I'm guessing for a lot of elite athletes at this point, you know, they might still be teens and they're not even still 
in conventional schooling or in conventional friendship relationships. Um, if, if sport, if they're mapping out what's meaningful to them and suddenly they realise that sport isn't one of those chair legs anymore or it isn't in the same way that it was previously, what, what does that do for someone for whom that's been such a big part of their identity? Yeah, again, a very good question. I think um, we go through various stages of grief in sport. We either don't get selected or we have a poor performance or we get injured or we retire. And each one of those steps can be challenging or not challenging to an individual. And often um, if they understand themselves and, and the emotional feelings that they're having, most people will transition through sport quite quite easily. But if I go back to that very early comment I made around the measuring your self-worth, at a very young age there is a concept called athlete foreclosure and I'd recommend to any of your listeners who want to understand this more to, to read about athlete foreclosure and it's pretty simple. It's just when your world becomes very, very small and defined within the sport that you're operating within and you don't have a capacity to look outside of that. So everything shuts down. Your development um, in the life outside of sport is, is, is not existing. So when one of those things occurs, it's catastrophic to say the least. And so if you think of the grief process, um, a loss of um, a loved one or an animal or or not being selected in a team, your first reaction is denial or shock. And as a result of that, you might start blaming, well, the coach should have taught me this or I should have done this or I should have done that. And then over a period of time, you might go through various stages of sadness and sometimes to a point of depression and eventually you recover. But in some cases, I've worked with athletes and business people that have left their places of employment or their sport five or six years later and they're fixated on one of those grief points and they haven't been able to move forward. And as you said earlier, that whole self-awareness becomes one of the factors as to why you can't move through that process. So I think if you think of grief and the catastrophic, catastrophic nature of grief and loss, that's what athletes feel. Yeah, okay. And that, which, I mean, I, well, not that I have ever been an elite athlete and nor will I be at this point in my life. But certainly I think we've all experienced transitions and periods of change in our lives that have required us to kind of, to use a very um, hackneyed phrase, dig deep and kind of understand a, a, a bit about ourselves in order to make the transformation that we need to move on to the next thing. So I, I have a sense, I guess, or I have as best a sense as I can of, of what that experience might be for someone, particularly if for some reason, and that notion of athlete foreclosure is really interesting, if, if we haven't had the opportunity to develop those skills, which I guess are part of maturity and, and part of growing up, if we haven't had the opportunity to develop some of that self-awareness and that insight into who we are and that understanding of what's important to us and that that's more than just one thing in our lives, that, you know, that, that could be a real opportunity for falling over, basically. Definitely. <laughs> not yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that, um, 
that issue around uh, athlete foreclosure also means that uh, my definition of who I am, my name is often not used. Oh, you're the footballer or you're the basketballer or you're the cricketer. And so over a long period of time, your brain gets used to defining that identity as as associated wholly with sport. And I'm not naive enough to, to not to appreciate the fact that you have to be so self-consumed to be at the top. It has to be. You cannot have uh, a fallback uh, plan in your head while you're competing. You have to be absolutely committed to it. However, you can, within a degree of planning, have like a, if you think of a brick wall, and I've said this to so many athletes, so I don't have the time, I'm on the road, take a cricket, they're on, on, on the road for about 265 days a year. Mm. And some of them may have families and children and, and everything associated with that. But if you take a brick wall, if you can put one brick to build that wall over a period of time, at some stage you're going to have the wall. And often an athlete won't start the process because they'll see the whole wall needing to be built as opposed to that first step. And so undertaking some education, um, which could be as simple as just a TAFE course or an online course or something, just to flip the switch in their in their mind is so powerful, so mm. powerful. It's interesting that you say that because I've actually used that very, it's not a, a brick wall. In my case, it's a mountain. Yeah. That idea, I do a lot of coaching work with people who are trying to achieve big goals and they struggle with the overwhelm of looking to the top of the mountain and saying, that's where I need to be. And it, it leads to procrastination and it leads to frustration and it leads to them actually delaying making progress because they can't see the first step, which is the, you know, the first tiny thing they need to do. They're, they're so all consumed by what the top of the mountain looks like and, and how they're going to get there. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of helping them to understand. If I'd have said to a 15-year-old or, or a, 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 in this case, a 10-year-old Ian Thorpe, it's going to take you 12 years to be a world champion. And at, at that age, they would have said 12 years, that's a lifetime. Yeah. So it's the same when you get to a 28-year-old who in the back of their mind they've always always wanted to do a degree and, and they'll say to you, well, that's going to take me four years. And so time yeah. becomes a real factor in decision-making. So it's, it's about that mindfulness and it's about bringing them right back to what you can do today to make a contribution to build that life that is going to make you simply happy and energised and, and fulfilled and, and give you that sense of belonging. And therein lies one of the other challenges in sport too, that that sense of belonging is so wrapped up with the peer group that you have within the sport. When you're no longer part of that group, your friends that you had outside of sport are very few. So you've not only um, cut out the physical activity associated with it, so you have to detrain and and really um, understand that you've got to detrain on your food. You've also got to build a whole new friendship group. Mm. Not easy. Yeah, I can I can imagine how, or just the way you've described it, is maybe think you know you really could feel very unmoored at that point. That that all of those connections of who you were around identity, but also as you say that 
the friendship groups, that belongingness that we know is so important to well-being, health, sleep, exercise, diet, all those other things that are kind of core to keeping us well, um, all of those things change quite rapidly. They do, and I think this is sometimes why we see a lot of mental health issues happening after athletes go through retirement. It's just been kept at bay for a long time and mm. without the natural endorphins of exercise and and possibly that um, falsified self-worth and esteem that's been propped up, it exposes itself. And it's very, very important and, and I think sport is getting much better at identifying and having mental health plans in place for um, for, for, for athletes. But they're, a, they're the 1%. It's equally as difficult for, as you said, a young boy who may have been given a scholarship at a private school because he's a rugby union or rugby league um, player and he gets to year 11 and um, does an ACL in his knee and no longer has a future. Yeah. yeah. Or the future that he thought he had. Yeah, the one he, the, the picture that he painted of his life is no longer the mm. picture that he, he will be able to, to fit into. So that's where it can get very high risk. And someone in that position too, I mean, it's not just about the individual. When they're that young, there's going to be a lot of other sort of invested parties, I'm, I'm guessing. You know, the school, if it's a scholarship, the school's obviously built up that image in his mind and, and perhaps in their own mind, you know, those, those instrumental in the school. There's probably parents, there'd be coaches, there'd be a whole lot of other people who are kind of invested in some way in that young person's future career. And that comes crashing down as well. And I'm wondering, I, I'm sort of imagining there might be feelings of guilt and, and responsibility to others. It, it's, again, a very good point. Without a doubt, that's an issue. In fact, there would be athletes who continue to play at the elite level because mum and dad may have very well shifted house so that they can be with a coach mm. Uh, mm. and they feel terribly responsible for that. Or you get the syndrome where the parents um, very unknowingly start to become the driver of, of the sporting um, journey on behalf of their child and then they don't even feel connected to it. Um, but even if that's not the case and you've got a very loving sort of environment and everything's balanced, the whole family unit and the siblings have to reconnect because all of yeah. a sudden uh, their conversation around the table over dinner or their conversation around anything is what do I say, how do I say it, do I ask him if he's okay, do I ask her if she's all right? And the parents often need just as much support to transition through this as, as the athlete themselves. Yeah, and, and you say that you feel that sporting organisations are starting to get a better grip because this is complex stuff. You know, you're talking about quite a system there surrounding this individual. Um, you say that you feel that they are starting to, to get a better grip on these issues. Yeah, the system has probably still got a long way to go. I feel as though I've been, it's like Groundhog Day, I feel like I'm having the same conversation I was having back in 1999, but um, the reality is that we're becoming more aware and more attuned to the fact that we all have a responsibility of care to each other in this mental health space and the more people that can talk about it and the more people that can 
share their stories, the better it will be for everyone. But coaches are now being very well trained as part of their accreditation about the language they use and, and, and how they support young people. The State Institute of Sports have got expertise um, that athletes can access. But once again, uh, if that person doesn't know how to seek it out, you can be surrounded by all sorts of experts, but you may connect with someone that doesn't necessarily have that skill. And so people are being taught to refer on, not to just listen and, and try and be the psychologist, but to really listen and refer. And that's the big yeah. that I've seen over the years. Okay. That, yeah, that's interesting. That's one of the things I, I spent a long time teaching talking to people in workplaces about mental health and wellbeing and, and suicidal ideation and what to do. And the emphasis was always on, you know, don't feel, because what we knew was that for a lot of people, especially in workplaces, they would avoid having conversations with someone they were concerned about because they felt that they somehow had to fix it or they had to be the psychologist or the counsellor and they didn't have the skills and it was uncomfortable and awkward and so they avoided. And so our emphasis was on... Um, telling them that they didn't need, that wasn't their role. Their role was to to show the individual the pathway to get professional assistance. So just knowing why, what the pathways were, being able to have conversations about, you know, I'm not an expert here, I really want to support you, but I really think you need to see your GP or if it was urgent, call Lifeline, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what's happening, which is which is really a really positive um, step that, that sport's taking. And it's sort of, um, as you said earlier, you're taught to dig deep in uh, your life and, and, and so you cover it up. And it's not yeah. until everything else is starting to crumble that it, you're exposing yourself. Yeah, you have to feel safe, don't you, to be able to even talk about that or, or show that um, side of you or, or uh, yeah, it's a complex situation and it's the environment, if the system that you're working within, the teams and the organisation or whatever it might be doesn't create that sense of safety, um, we just have a tendency to just shut it all away and hope it goes away, which we know doesn't work. Well, people are putting you up on a pedestal the whole time and so it's very hard to ask for help at that elite level and in a, in a team environment, if you... If you show a weakness, then you might lose your spot. So they're the sorts of things I think that, that are starting to change. Yeah. Yeah, because, I, I, I mean, you, you've worked with people who have been very much in the public eye whilst experiencing these things, these challenges in their careers and, and around themselves and their well-being and their mental health. Um, I can only imagine that that just adds a whole extra layer when you are this high-profile person, young person, well, it takes away that uh, issue that we take for granted when we're not in the public eye is you can go home and deal with this in a private way. But the media, once they get onto a story, they don't let it go and they'll mm. hold, on, hold on and not necessarily think about the health and well-being of the person themselves. But, yes, you have to deal with this in a very public way. So part of the process of working your way through this is also how are you going to deal with the media and how are you yeah. going to manage this. And, again, it's another level of expertise and a lot of young athletes will, and you see it all the time, they speak to the media, it's almost robotic. They don't really show who they are or, or be genuine. And when 
an athlete comes in, in into contact with the media and you see them being really genuine, it's a breath of fresh air. But they are almost in, in, innately not trusting of that environment for that reason. Yeah, that's really interesting because one of the things I comment on, you know, we do watch a lot of sport. I, I live in a household full of boys and men. Um, yeah. So we do watch a lot of sport in our family. And one of the things that I often comment to my husband about is that all these sports people just sound the same. You know, it's like the same kind of set of cliches that come out and, and come across. And I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that, that is a, a a choice perhaps to actually shut down and not reveal too much of yourself. Yeah. Well, it's two things happening. One is they, ha- they don't know how to do it. But secondly, when I go back and talk about that athlete closure, what's one of the things I, I observe when I see people in front of the media, I can pick it now and absolutely pick it because that's all they can talk about. That's that, that the genuineness and the real individual is somehow buried beneath this, um, mm. this whole environment. And it, yeah, it makes it pretty boring to sit and listen to, but <laughs> it's quite concerning at times. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's a lack of, I've been talking a lot to people recently in, in workplaces and with coaching clients about the importance of authenticity, yes. of being really genuine and authentic and, and feeling that you're allowed to be, that you don't. You know, I know for a lot of managers in workplaces, for example, I talk about having to put your manager hat on mm. and pretend to be this person who has all the answers or who behaves in a certain way or who uses the jargon and how disconnecting that is or can be from who you really are and how it doesn't allow you to kind of thrive and flourish but also doesn't allow your team to thrive mm. and flourish and you have these kind of, robot people really you know these these people who are not true to who they are not not because they don't want to be but because they don't feel safe to do so or they don't know how to be yeah that personal safety I think in an organization that corporate safety is something that we don't talk about enough but in sport safety is a big issue every single day you put your job on the line every Mm. single day circumstances change and every single day you're getting feedback about something. So personal safety, if you don't have, I'll go, keep going back to that really simplistic chair analogy, if you don't have that around you, the level of anxiety and uncertainty makes it very difficult to even find that authenticity about everything. So you just mm. wrap a little bubble around yourself and you get rolled along like a, a mouse on a wheel and that's what happens. Yeah. And so I can imagine that having somebody like yourself who is able to be there to talk about these concepts, and as you say, you like to keep it very practical and I guess not too confrontational really for people perhaps for for whom these concepts are quite new. Um, So to be able to have that sounding board would make an enormous difference, wouldn't it? It does. I've just come back from um, the National Pro League in America and the World Championships with the Australian softball team. So I was away for nearly three months, which is very unusual for, for that to happen. And I saw firsthand we've got softball players playing all over the world to to get to a level of competition that they need and to qualify for the, for the Olympics. And to bring a, a group of 26 players together where you are on a, on a plane or a bus at 6 o'clock in the morning and playing in the afternoon back-to-back seven days a week gave me a real insight into what, say, professional cricketers are dealing with. But to be there on a day-to-day basis just to support them with their well-being 
has been um, not only worthwhile for the individuals themselves, but it gives me such more greater insight into um, that that safety issue that that I was talking about before. How do you normalise an experience like that? And a lot of players are doing it, rugby and basketball. And how do you normalise that day and try and mm. make yourself feel safe in the environment that is just moving constantly? You know, Seventy guys, yeah. softball, thirty flights, um, twenty-five hotels, and just keeps going on and on. And simply, practically, again, I would ask the players: So, what do you normally do on the way to work? What do you normally do on the way to uni? I always stop and get a coffee. All right, that's what you're going to do. There's a van mm. in there. Go get a coffee. And so, it's simple things like that that I think um, really help people to feel safe. Yeah, trying to trying to create a routine, I suppose. You know that that we know that routine is so important to people in order to maintain that you know sleep and and ritual and all of those things that contribute to our well being. And a situation like that doesn't allow for a whole lot of routine, does it? That's exactly right. And and if you take that away, so when you come back from a major tournament like that, there is a post-depression that can kick in because, mm. as I said earlier, elite sport is very structured. And if you need to, it's people say, no, I want you to have a four-weeks break. Now, if you don't plan for that four-weeks break, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, if you're not used to setting that structure for yourself, and um, you will sit there and, and think, I, I need to go and play softball or I need to go and kick the football or I need to go and throw some, some basketball. And, again, it's it's keeping that scaffolding around you so that you you plan for those, those down times rather than just think that it's all going to, you know, work out for me when I, when I go back. And that's a really, really important thing. Yeah. So, Dee, We've talked a lot about how this plays out for athletes and sports people, but these concepts really translate to a lot of others who are in perhaps high-performance roles. Just just while you were speaking, I was thinking about um, performance artists who have to be on tour for great long periods of time. And I'm actually working with someone, I'm supervising a fellow psych who is working a fly-in, fly-out role Yes. at the moment it's in quite difficult conditions. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the athletes and sports people, is it? You no. work with others in this transition. Yeah. I've worked with um, dancers with the Australian Ballet. And the difference between, say, a, a ballerina, male or female, and an athlete is they have to run a business themselves. They're constantly putting themselves up for auditions and they can go for period of time without working so they have to have almost a dual career either choreography or something else that they do um and musicians is another <laughs> one art uh, actors are the same so it's it's again it's an all-consuming thing that is very very difficult but there are different associated challenges so an artist tends to spend time on their own person in a team sport tends tends to be around people. So they've got their little idiosyncrasies, but it applies to the person that retires as a, as a, a high-performance CEO or any one of those uh, performing arts environments. It's exactly the same except that the application might be slightly different. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm sort of imagining really, well, I can automatically think of things that apply to me, to, that apply to me as a parent. Um, you know, when I think about the transitions that my kids make, especially perhaps around sport and, and it's not necessarily, you know, it, this is very early days for us, but even when you're talking about the fact that, you know, conversations around the house get consumed, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about my oldest child's sport just because it is so prominent in our lives from a practical point of view and then trying to think about my little guy who's not interested in sport at all and, you know, are we making sure that we're not overemphasizing this mm. thing um, above the other important elements. Yes, and that awareness that you've got um, is is why that will work for your family. But you can imagine when you have four siblings and for whatever reason mum and dad are just focusing on the conversation with one, that the other siblings become almost detached from the conversation. And yeah. even if they wanted to be involved in it, they choose not to be. So I think for parents, the role of parents in, in this is, is critical and they need just as much help. In fact, um, it's interesting, uh, again, we just came back from the World Championships and all the parents come and watch their daughters every year and, and they're a close-knit group of parents. And if you don't involve them in what your plans are and, and what the vision is and how it's all going to work, it makes it very difficult for them to get on board with what you're trying to do because inevitably it's the first person that the players want to see when they come off the diamond is their family. Mm. And if you're all on board and all understand what our roles are, everybody works together. But parents mm. play a significant role and they're often overlooked in, in terms of support. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on our experience as a family and, and involved in a number of just different sporting clubs locally. And I mean, I live in Ballarat in Victoria. It's a very sporty place. Yes, it is. <laughs> There's a lot of emphasis placed on sport here. And we're involved in a number of junior clubs now. And this is all new for me. I, I didn't grow up having experience in sporting clubs um, at all. So it's all quite a new experience for me. But there are particularly some clubs who put a lot of emphasis on the role of parents. There is a lot of communication. There is a lot of involvement, not just in terms of wanting people to help volunteer for canteen and, and scoring and, and those roles, which I know every sporting club relies on at, at the grassroots level, but information and talking about some of the, the things that I find really important as a psychologist, but also as a parent around the values that they're trying to instill in the kids, what they're trying to teach the kids about you know, what it is to be a sports person, what it is to show respect to your competitors, what it is to show respect for the umpires or the referees. Um, it, it is a great place, I think, or a great, it shows a lot of opportunity for developing some of these skills in people if these sporting clubs get it right. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think country areas particularly do it very, very well. And I know Ballarat's a big, big city now, but there's still a tribe. There's a tribe that, that just get going and, 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 and build on it. Where I live in Sydney and Avalon, it's very similar. Even though it's in the, in, in the city, it's still a very coastal, small-town sort of mentality. But the difficulty is that the better your child gets, the less of that happens. And the parents almost get disenfranchised. Dis, um, so they go from doing that sort of 
real tribal group all being part of it to being completely disconnected. And if, if for the athlete themselves at a young age, we can help teach those life skills. And that's what sport is life. You learn to cooperate. You learn to share. You learn to um, know what it's like to fail and, and pick yourself up again. You, you learn to, um, you know, all of life skills that, that are important. But at the same time, um, it's, it's quite confronting if you can't rationalise and understand that. And so you'll see some parents not have developed that. And, mm. and you can almost appreciate the fact, like I, I'm a, I have a great belief in, in this strong desire to play as, as human beings. And my PhD was, was looking at why alcohol has become such an uh, important component of team sports. And I was curious as to why that happened. And, and I think of what you've just described with um, that whole tribal nature of, of, a, of a local association, that adults still have this desire to play. And if they don't have a way of expressing that, they're almost a child again and part, almost so inter- interconnected with the performance of their child that it comes out all wrong and really... Mm. You know, we all we all still want to be spontaneous and and explore and 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 you know have fun and, and mimic whatever's going on around us. And it's just it doesn't seem to be as acceptable. And so I think some of the parents um, lose sight of that for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, and get a bit caught up in in living, I suppose, or, or you know, the vicarious experience of that through their child, perhaps. Yeah, because they, for whatever reason, haven't been able to work their way through the entirety of that learning process as a young person mm. themselves. So it's almost um, unfinished business, if you like. Yeah, yeah. So, Dee, what you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the mental game, I suppose, and, and this is, this, you know, this, the psychological side of sport and athletes and high performance and, and lots of different impacts there from the process of, disengaging or, or, you know, retiring, that's the right word, moving on um, through to kind of, you know, the support systems that are there and and lots of different facets of it. What are your hopes and, and what are your plans for this improving this mental game for, for athletes, for executives, for, for anyone in that performing performance arena? Well, the principles of what I'm trying to do at the moment is to understand the missing parts of this puzzle. And I'm working on a, a, a process now which I'm calling survival intelligence. And it's a part of ourselves that enable us to survive on a day-to-day basis that we're just not tapping into. And you mentioned earlier there's a lot been um, done on IQ, EQ, SQ. And, but do we really work in pockets like that and or, or, or how do we get these things to actually operate more successfully? And again, on a practical level and simplifying this as, as much as possible, the whole mental game is, is really around three things. It's around posture, it's around relaxation, and it's around breathing. And yep. everything that we try and do around uh, helping people to understand the mind game associated with performance I believe can be dealt with through those three things. Mm-hmm. And 
and I will get probably um, shot down in flames by most of the sports psychologists out there, so I'm apologising up front. This is my opinion. <laughs> um, but those, those things, if you can work on a plan that allows people to slow everything down, to understand their breathing, to understand their posture, to understand how to relax, then almost um, naturally our body starts to, to click in. And I try and keep it as simple as I possibly can. So my hopes and dreams is to develop this survival intelligence to the point where um, it's almost like a movement out there. And it's to me it's about helping people to help each other. Um, and it's not complicated. And that's even in, in sport. If you think of why somebody gets breaks down in their mental game, it will normally start with fear, fear and safety. And fear is normally projected, as you know, because you're, you're thinking about what might happen. And it, it's exactly what occurs in sport. What happens if I don't get on base right now if I'm a softballer? What happens if I don't score this try? What happens if I drop this ball? And as soon as, we, as, soon as you take your, your mind out of the moment, then there's a big risk that you will convince yourself. That what happens. <laughs> and so, again, it's, it's helping people to understand what why that happens and how fear actually enters into the way that you you play your game and safety um is the other thing if you don't feel safe and you talked earlier about in the corporate environment most of the issues that people suffer with in in an organization is that that corporate safety yeah it's safe and so they can't yeah. have that authenticity and so what does somebody need to feel safe and how do they they create that for themselves in in this in their sporting environment. How do they learn to communicate more effectively with their coach? Because we make assumptions that coaches should be telling athletes everything, but sometimes a coach will be technically very strong, but not necessarily emotionally very aware. Mm. And to get all of those characteristics lined up is a very unique coach. So we. Yeah a lot of these coaches, enormous amount. So the athlete has to take some responsibility for their performance and and know what that means and, and how to be accountable and how to maintain a degree of honesty and how to build that within their uh, plan of attack, if you like. So that's what my dream is in, in that space because I really believe that um, every person that's involved in sport if they can work through this, can be a great citizen and they can contribute in, in, in many ways. And I don't want people to see sport as a negative experience and I don't want people that retire from the elite level never to feel as though they, they can partake in sport again because the loss to them has been so painful that they can't. Mm. And it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. In positive psychology, we, we talk about the role of institutions. Yes. Um, our, our, you know, community institutions or, our, in this case, sporting institutions, workplaces, um, and the role that they can play in helping to create thriving, flourishing individuals, which, of course, then reflects back into those bigger institutions themselves. You know, we have thriving, flourishing institutions and communities. And I can really see and I can hear in your voice, you know, that passion for using sport as your, you know, field of, of you know, background and, and, you know, field of endeavour um, to be able to create those thriving, flourishing individuals and institutions within that 
domain um, as, as a part of a bigger contribution to our well-being overall. Yeah, and I think that's, to me, it's I don't own any of the knowledge. In fact, the more I learn, the less I know. <laughs> I know that problem. <laughs> Just, you know, people say to me, gee, you finished your PhD and you must have learnt a lot. And I said, no, all it did was teach me what I don't know. And I think about this environment as well, which is why I'm sort of trying now to look at this at this survival intelligence component because the answer lies within every single person. It's just helping them to dig that out with a simple framework, as you know, and that's what, to me, is, um, is the best way to support people. I don't want an umbilical cord attached to me and an athlete. I want them to take absolute ownership over their learning and their capacity to become a, a, a happier person. And I think yeah. that's, that's what we've all got to do more effectively. And it, it does get difficult at times because we've all got, you know, different boundaries that we have to operate within. But positive psychology for me has been the most exciting change in the psychology area um, that has stopped this re- this reduction thinking and this um, almost, well, we have to go through this process to get to this outcome. Um, and it's exciting. It's an exciting time for everybody. Yeah, it's very exciting. And and I think I absolutely share your passion there for, you know, what, what I call, or my colleagues call psychoeducation, um, you know, of just sharing the knowledge out there, not being the expert, but giving people the skills, the knowledge, the expertise and the confidence to be able to use this stuff in their own lives so that they can then thrive and flourish as individuals and, and pass that along, you know, that pay it forward thing that you mentioned right at the beginning yeah. of um, being able to pay it forward to other people in their lives. In, in the coaching master's degree that I did, um, one of the things that really stands out that I remember was that we, we were not being taught uh, or we were being taught to help to coach people to coach themselves, basically. Yeah. And it yeah. gives them the skills and knowledge to be able to go forward and, and you know, use that in themselves so that you're not attached, they're not reliant, um, you know, which, which I think is a wonderful thing to be able to do for people. I call it the Mrs Dalton theory. And Mrs Dalton was my first netball coach when I was eight years of age. And of all of the people that have influenced my thinking, it all goes back to Mrs Dalton. But this group... How group of eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old girls that had a concentration span of an ant and <laughs> get us to play a game of netball without talking and and produce some success for us. But she was a disciplinarian around being on time, around respecting each other, around um, committing to whatever we'd agreed we were going to do. And she just played it forward to that whole team and I now keep in touch as four of us and we all have that same mentality that Mrs. Dalton set that framework up for us and it's our job to continue on. And some of them have gone into nursing, others have gone into nutrition and, and alternative medicines and but they're helping people and, and yeah, it's a Mrs. Dalton theory and everybody has a Mrs. Dalton out there at some stage in their life that, that has an impact. It could be a teacher, it could be a parent, it could be a coach, and it's just being able to recognise for a young person, recognise that um, that it's okay to go back and think about those things and, and maybe start again. Yeah, what a wonderful. I, I like that Mrs. Dalton effect. <laughs> I think you know. I think those teachers, those um, 
influencers. I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday and they were talking about the, the role or um, it was Todd Sampson and, and Osher Ginsberg and they were talking about the role that teachers had played, like individual teachers who had played, who had somehow influenced or, or mentored them or even just did one thing that made them feel good about themselves or understand their strengths or give them the confidence or, or perhaps in Mrs Dalton's case of providing a framework of how to be a good person mm. um, and how significant that is for people, for kids, you know, going forward, if they could have that, you know, as a, as a bit of a launching pad. So I thought back to my own experience of um, teachers in my life who had made a difference and there's definitely been some, you know, few people who might have only said one or two things, but it, it kind of shaped a bit of who I was or yeah. am. Absolutely, and I think with a in a, in the sporting environment, I, I have two things that part of that practical thing is show me your generosity of spirit, and many athletes will look at me and go, "What?" And I said, "What have you done for somebody else?" Yeah. And the and the second thing is, what are you grateful for? And especially if you're in a bit of a hole, if you can just get a daily routine of writing down what you're grateful for every day and thinking about what your um, generosity of spirit is, then things change. But sometimes you've mm. got to ignite that. When, when life takes us into this real self-centred environment where we don't feel safe, we feel as though we're, we can't be authentic and we get lost. And those simple little practical tools can bring people back. And that's Mrs Dalton theory for me, those two <laughs> elements. So, yeah, I'm a big believer of it. Perfect. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today. I'm going to put um, a link to some of the, the resources and um, topics that you mentioned in our show notes and also a link to your LinkedIn profile so that people can find you if they'd like to know more. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. It's given me a lot to think about both as a parent but also one of the things that, that strikes me, one of the things that I've, I've loved about interviewing a number of people on this podcast is that there are so many people really working towards the same ideals of helping others to help themselves, to create that safety, to create that self-awareness, um, to give people the skills to worry less and live more across a number of different domains. And it's been fascinating to talk to you about your goals and plans and ambitions and experience in doing that within the sporting and elite athletics or elite athlete area. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I've really appreciated it as well. It's um, nice to actually have a conversation and get some exceptional questions where you can share your thoughts and ideas. So thanks again to you as well. You are very welcome. Thank you for joining me for today's interview with Dee Anderson. You can find out more about Dee and discover the tips and resources that she's recommended in the show notes for this episode. Head over to potential.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, are you joining us today via the Radio Public app? If so, thank you. Radio Public is a free, easy to use listening app that financially supports independent podcasters like me. And if you're not listening to us via Radio Public, please give it a go. There's a link to download the app in the podcast page of the Potential Psychology website. 
And while you're cruising around the website, you might also like to check out the newly launched Potential Psychology Store. It's filled with resources to help you live, learn, flourish and fulfil your potential. You'll find my new ebook, The Positive Parenting Toolkit, a suite of discovery tests to enhance your self-awareness and help make decisions easier and your direction clearer. You'll also find two of my goal coaching programs, the short Stop Stalling 5-Step Goal Coaching Challenge and my fully-fledged email coaching program in which we interact weekly online and over email to get you from where you are now to where you want to be, wherever that may be. If you get a moment, I'd also love it if you can take the time to rate and review this podcast in iTunes. I really love reading your feedback and it gives us some insight into where we might be able to improve and make the podcast even better. So enough of all that. What's coming up in next week's episode? Well, I am interviewing two of the co-authors of a new book, The Rubber Brain, a toolkit for optimising your study, work and life. And we're digging into motivation, procrastination, perfectionism, fear of failure, and many of the other issues that students face. And let's be honest, we all face from time to time. And why it helps to have a rubber brain. Here's a sneak peek. Even though you may know the right study strategies to implement, there may well be emotional motivational factors presenting barriers for you and my favorite is procrastination <laughs> engage in that <laughs> as always thanks for listening have a great week and i look forward to being with you next time <laughs>